Hello and welcome to our Anzac Round edition of The People's Game. This week on the show, we're looking back at the first time the VFL played footy on Anzac Day in The Unwatchables. In The Rewatchables, we'll discuss the birth of the modern AFL tradition in 1995, when the first Collingwood and Essendon, Essendon clash on the day took place. And in Book Club, we've poured over Martin Flanagan's biography of Michael Long. A poignant reflection on the life of a man who played a key role in race relations in footy after he was vilified by Collingwood's Damien Monkhorst in that 1995 Anzac clash. Gordon Meredith is here as usual to spar and to yarn. Gordon, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Eat again, JB. How are you doing with another week of isolation and no footy? Uh, been for a couple of kicks of the footy this week, which has definitely helped uh, settle the nerves or settle the uh, no footy anxiety a little bit. I would say that... Um, I don't know when we are going to get a return to footy, but it's probably looking better again this week than it was when we spoke this time last week. Yeah, positive vibes around more people willing to do more things. And, you know, this has been pretty fun. So if there's no footy this year, so be it. We'll, uh, we'll just cherry pick the best bits from history. It's been, like, strangely quite enjoyable. I'm kind mm-hmm. of think of, like... There's that really good quote in Moneyball at the end of the film, which is like, it's amazing how much you don't know about a game that you've followed your entire life. It's something like that. And I kind of, and this has nothing to do with data and analytics, but just like doing some weird deep dives and actually watching games from sort of bygone eras and eras that I probably don't remember because of my age, even that like 2004 game with Hurd. Um, it's kind of interesting now to look at that retrospectively and to realise how much it actually has changed because when old, older people, not old people, talk about um, how much the game has changed, I don't think you actually realise if you've kind of only been brought up on kind of post-2007 footy, really. Yeah, so ultra-professional football hasn't changed all that much. Maybe the players are a bit more homogenous. But yeah, when you go back to the 90s and the 80s, you're like, oh, wow, this is a different sport, basically. So, mm. which we'll get into later kind on, of, I reckon. Yeah, kind of looking forward to the... There's a couple of points later in the year where we'll do, like, some deep dives into the televised games in the 60s and 70s, which I'm looking forward to, although the cameras will be pretty average. I just reckon, like, going even that much further back um, will be interesting again from kind of the 80s and the 90s where we've played around a fair bit to this point. The Unwatchables this week. In 1960, the VFL played footy on Anzac Day for the very first time at Brunswick Street Oval. Yes, Brunswick Brunswick Street Oval in Old Fitzroy. The Roys upset Carlton by seven points. And at the Junction Oval in St Kilda, Melbourne beat the Saints by 24 points. More than 65,815 people attended the two matches across that Anzac Day. So, Gordon, to begin our segment, my question without notice for you, do you have a gut feel about how 
the semi-regular Anzac Day footy in the 60s and 70s was received by the sporting public in Melbourne? My gut feel based on high school history class and civics uh, is that basically the Anzac movement was waning a fair bit. And so it wasn't like, it definitely wasn't, wasn't like what it is now where, you know, Anzac Day is equal to or second to the grand final in terms of the footy world. And then especially now where we have a kind of Anzac weekend and ceremonies for multiple games, nothing of the sort like that. And then as far as I know, it was a lot more of like a solemn, not even really a day of commemoration, just like a really solemn day. And so like when things weren't open, things weren't open and like footy wasn't regularly played on Anzac day. That sort of thing is the, is the gut feel I have. Um, and definitely not this, yeah, footy and like the Anzac spirit weren't hand in hand, brand in brand as it is nowadays. Pretty bang on. But it's, so in, in 1958, the AFL, or sorry, the VFL in those days, wasn't allowed to play on Anzac Day. So it was still legislated that they wouldn't. So the Saturday games in 1958 were all just postponed. The whole round didn't go ahead. Um, and then... Once that legislation was lifted after 1958, um, they had a such a big problem with playing on Sunday that they didn't play a game on Anzac Day Sunday in 19, uh, 1959 and then played two games on the Monday. The really interesting thing, and this is kind of a weird historical tidbit, was that all the VFL games on the Saturday that preceded the Monday that was actually Anzac Day were postponed because of weather, so because of like some really saucy rain. Um, which pretty much bogged all the footy grounds. That's my understanding. And so at the time, Victorian Premier Henry Bolt had the option to play the four postponed matches on Anzac Day along with the two that they'd pre-scheduled, but actually chose not to because they would have had to have contributed a significant amount of the profits to patriotic funds. So even when they started doing it, there was kind of, it was very much a bit of a dip your toe in. But the thing that does come across from the match reporting uh, particularly in the age, um, was was very much that there was no real discussion of these being Anzac Day matches. They were mentioned like, these games are clearly taking place on Anzac Day, but there was no kind of metaphors or use of language that mixed war and sport in any of the kind of historical records I can find of the two matches that started it all in 1960. It also seems to be a fairly uh, strong sentiment with clubs not wanting to donate to the war fund as well because it did the same thing when they postponed footy or had the retracted season in 1916 with the four-team season that Fitzroy won from last obviously all of that was meant to go into the war fund and then they kind of botched the books and made up some expenses so as much as it's have come such a far way in like a hundred years to get to the point now where footy is probably one of the biggest fundraisers for the Anzac movement and the Anzac brand versus even 50 years ago where we're like, well, we don't really want to put that much money into this fund. So we're going to like avoid Anzac Day at all costs. We kind of start playing on Anzac Day in 1960. And then the Vietnam War begins in 1962. So Anzac Day actually becomes a day where there's a lot of political protests um, and particularly protests around conscription because for the first time, like so during the Vietnam War and any kind of history buffs will know this, the Australian government had the power to compel servicemen to fight in faraway places. So actually to send people to Vietnam. That was eventually repealed by Whitlam in 73. Um, 
but it kind of led to a, a yeah a tone of the public really not getting around Anzac Day. There's probably a better word for it, supporting Anzac Day um, in those kind of two decades. The other thing that, and I've kind of mentioned this already, they would play on Anzac Day when it was like a Thursday. So they'd schedule two games just because it was a public holiday and people would go. But as soon as it fell on a Sunday, they just flat didn't do it. So like Sundays were more sacrosanct to the VFL in the 1960s than Anzac Day. That'd be a very interesting deep dive to go into. When did sport give up Sundays? Because, mm. like, cricket it's, was never played on a Sunday. Yeah, it was a very day of rest for everyone and everything for a very long time. And now, all of a sudden, it's like Sundays are for the sports. So it seems to be, like, right up into the 1970s that that was, mm. was the case. Um, so where this... I've kind of mentioned the opposition to Anzac Day. Like, so in 1975, and this is quite instructive... The Australian newspaper marked the day with only one newspaper story, which when you consider that relative to the coverage that Anzac Day would get across the national media and will get um, come Anzac Day in, what, six days' time, um, that's really, really stark um, compared to what you kind of see today. Mm. And furthermore, it's not just newspapers now, it's, it's brands and everything. Like Everyone is, does their absolute best to try and create their part of Anzac Day spirit nowadays versus, yeah, back then where it was either largely ignored, protested against, or just accepted as a thing that was the way of life. We take a half day off, a full day off, and then we move on. Mm. So that kind of couple of games on Anzac Day kind of simmers along through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. There's a couple of those games that really, really stand out. So in 75, Carlton played Essendon. Um, at VFL Park in front of, this is nearly a crowd number that is only sevens, 77,770 fans. Surely we could have gotten seven more in there. But anyway, um, so that game draws a huge crowd. And then two years later in 77, Richmond and Collingwood play at the MCG in front of 92,436, a game that Kevin Sheedy plays in. Um, but even though we're actually drawing kind of wholesale and big crowds to the footy, there isn't really a public appetite to get behind the Anzac concept. And that changes, and I had no idea about this. Um, that changed in the early 90s. So Bob Hawke became the first Australian politician ever to visit Gallipoli in 1990. And then also decided at that point that the government would pay to take Anzac veterans back to Gallipoli for the 75th anniversary of the landing. Um, which seems to be, when you look at the narrative arc, a kind of an uplift, and then you obviously get the new Anzac Day traditional clash that comes about in 1995. And that kind of seems to be how the arc from that kind of dip through the Vietnam War swings upwards in the other direction between kind of politicians, but then also sport kind of jumping on the, the wagon. Well, yeah, and I suppose politics and sport are always very heavily intertwined. And I suppose from that movement, really, so Bob Hawke was the first to go to the Gallipoli. The next Prime Minister was Paul Keating, who, if you take... Australia's notion of, of war alliances, it's always been with Western, the Western world, so England first and then America, and then he wanted to move into Asia. And then he gets booted, John Howard comes in, and he goes, we don't want to align with Asia, we want to align with America, and with that comes this very militaristic identity. And so what's the easiest way to get Australians on board with militaristic identity? Well, we create the sports narrative that says 
these are our modern day soldiers. This, this is how you teach ethics and this is how you teach folklore and this is how you teach philosophy. Being Australian is being a battler, mateship, teamship, all that kind of stuff. And so that's where, it, it, yeah, for a tradition in inverted commas, it is no older than John Howard's prime ministership. No, correct. And then, so Howard goes to Anzac Day commemorations in Gallipoli in 2000 and then in 2005. The interesting thing is, and I thought about this with Boxing Day. So box, the Boxing Day test. So some of our so-called sporting traditions are very, very, very modern. So the Boxing Day test was like conceived like some 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's often spoken about, you kind of have this lasting idea that it's been going on for like 70 years and my grandfather went to the Boxing Day test. Or oh, even nowadays, like, yeah, test. that that the home of cricket is actually the MCG and the Ashes were formed on Boxing Day is like the vibe you get from its importance. Mm. And that's very much the same as as Anzac Day and footy. It's like football was invented. Like if you if you just went there as like an international international student on exchange to it to Melbourne, and you went to an Anzac Day clash, you would leave there thinking that football was made with the exclusive purpose of teaching militaristic practices and philosophies that are like reflective of our Gallipoli soldiers in 1914. Mm. I think the other thing is so when you talk about the general. VFL creep to kind of inhabit all parts of the year. So like Sundays we didn't have and now we just have Sundays. Friday nights weren't a thing until really early in the 90s or certainly not a thing in the way that they're now a thing. Mm. Anzac Day wasn't a thing until 95. We tried Good Friday for the first time, again, fitting in with the Good Friday appeal within, what was that, two or three years ago? Yep. Yep. And so I, I guess the, the question is, and this is kind of the futuristic question, it's like, where is there actually anywhere that we don't now have footy as an accepted part of the national calendar? Well, so like with, with coronavirus, it means Christmas correct. Day Grand Final. Like, I mean, Christmas Day fair, Grand Final. That'd be pretty cool. I've often, I've often said that Richmond winning a flag is like Christmas coming early and it could actually be just Christmas coming this year. Um, but like, there's that general kind of creep. And we see this in other sports as well with discussion of whether the BBL should play on Christmas Day even the BBL playing on Boxing Day, you know, there's all of this creep. So it's, the, I think the question that this poses is like, and this is probably just a, not just a sports question, but a society question. It's like, are we ever going to have a day where it, it is like Good Friday used to be where literally everything is shut and you buy your fish on the Thursday night? Like, are we ever going to have a day that is completely that? I suppose the, the point, the, the more poignant question is, why are we having those days? Mm. So it's like Good Friday to shut the whole place down on Good Friday or Christmas Day. It's like, are we actually that secular? Are we actually that Christian of a country that we need to do that, or are we committing to our secular society now and saying, well, actually, we're a multicultural society, so there are lots of people that don't believe in these days or don't commemorate these days or do so out of societal practice but not cultural practice. And so potentially, yeah, we can do stuff on these days, and it's not like. Sunday is the day of rest anymore because, you know, for some cultures, it's Friday night. So other cultures, it's Saturday morning. Like, it's different. I think the more pertinent question, especially when it comes to Anzac Day, though, is that why are we celebrating this day so heavily? And are we choosing to do it? Are we accepting a narrative from someone else? Because, mm. again, we, yeah. we, we, have, we have kind of just accepted this tradition that is only, you know, 25 years old thing that I always found interesting about Anzac Day and I think this is a perspective that came from living 
in the UK for four or five years um, was that over, over there, Remembrance Day, November 11, is the major, major, major war memorial day, which is, which is a day that signifies war ending. And I've always found the contrast quite interesting in terms of which day you prioritise, because we do have Remembrance Day as a commemoration within Australia, but not to the public holiday extent there is Anzac Day. Um, and I have always kind of wondered, yeah, how it is that the different countries have come to commemorate Anzac Day versus Remembrance Day in different levels of esteem. Well, I feel like universally Remembrance Day is literally that. So it's a day of remembrance, whereas a lot of countries will take their national day and make it a day of branding. And so like Anzac Day, I think at the moment is very much our national branding day. That's like, that's what we, we buy into the Anzac spirit, the Gallipoli spirit, that these are the things that define us as a nation. And with that is naturally coupled sport because that's what we see ourselves as. We are this underdog battler. That's all of it. it all ties in from that Gallipoli history and that Gallipoli mythology. And it ties in so nicely with our sporting history that the two marry together quite, quite nicely. And then we can do both. We can, we can go to the march and then carry on to the, to the game and have the best of both worlds. And then it's, it's Australia packaged in a day. Whereas Remembrance Day is, is not that. It's not, no one's really seeking it out to be a branding day. And so I see Anzac Day games more closely aligned to the military appreciation days that you see in American sports where I think baseball does it once a month, basically. They wear, they're wearing army fatigues as uniforms during games, like once every four weeks. There is, I mean, we spoke last week about the amount of VFL clubs that had players that served in the war and passed away. And so I do think the opportunity to commemorate that loss is really, really important, not just for, the, for football, but for the broader, for broader society. I guess my question with Anzac Day is, is, is there room for a more nuanced discussion about why the day is the day that it is and what it actually represents? Mm. Because at the end of the day, and this is one of the reasons that um, Anzac Day, we beholden to the British army were slaughtered in huge numbers. So it's sort of, it's a very, very sobering day, no matter which way you look at it. And it's not a triumphant day, no matter what way you look at it. But I think it depends on how you, how you view it and how, yeah. And how it is marketed. Is, is it, is it a day that actually is a commemoration of that date or is it more an acknowledgement of what, Anzac means to us now. And I think that's where it's more moved towards and possibly why it's become more popular because it's a much easier sell to say to people, celebrate everything that's great about being Australian. This, this mythology, our current culture, blend it all together. Have a, have a time to reflect and be solemn and respect those who have passed, but then also have a time to like almost celebrate what it means to be Australian. Welcome live around Australia, exclusively on Seven Sport. We believe it's a lockout. People still outside the ground with the game about to start between Collingwood and Essendon. So the crowd inside is something like 90,000 in this game, which completes round four of the season. We've still got five months to go to the finals. 90,000 here. Well, what a game this should be. And Melbourne, apart from the Anzac Day march, 
has come to a standstill this afternoon for this game. In 1995, a new tradition was born when Collingwood and Essendon met on a Tuesday afternoon at the MCG in front of 94,825 fans. That remains the second highest home and away crowd in league history. The 2020 Anzac Day clash, as we've also mentioned, would have been the 25th instalment of the game. This traditional clash is the one that has endured despite attempts by the league to place other matches on Anzac Day. First between Sydney and Melbourne for the Barassi Cup and later by having St Kilda play in New Zealand. There were Anzac Day matches as far back as 1960, but never with the continuity brought about by the new matchup dreamt up by Kevin Sheedy. After playing off in the 1990 Grand Final, the Dons of the Pies had enjoyed a fierce rivalry. 76,000 people turned out when the sides met in 1994, suggesting administrators had cottoned on to a concept that couldn't help but succeed. The Bombers were three zip and flying in 1995, but the Pies were still looking for their first win of the season. Their coach, Lethal Lee Matthews, was under huge pressure going into the clash. And with a swath of injuries to his senior players, he needed his players to find something special to break their duck. Gordon, you've got a one-minute recap of this game for us. Certainly do, JB. The original and arguably the best, this Anzac Day blockbuster had the lot. Played on a sunny autumn day, both teams kicked six goals in the first quarter. A three-goal to one second quarter helped Essendon lead by 16 points at the halftime break with a momentum swayed in the third quarter when the Pies kicked seven goals to two, giving them a 14-point lead at the break. Regular listeners, however, will realise that the Coy Wobbles are definitely still a thing in the early 90s. And Essendon started strongly with the funnel term when James Hurd snapped a goal late in the quarter, giving his team the six-point advantage. Cue Severio Rocker, who took, in the words of Drew Moffat, one of the marks of the year. At the 28-minute mark, he capitalised, kicking the goal and levelling the scores. And that would prove the anticlimax to this first Anzac Day clash, as this back-and-forth battle ultimately ended in a stalemate. In just his second season with the Pies, a young Nathan Buckley amassed an impressive 30 touches and three Brownlow votes. But the retrospective Anzac Day medal went to one Sav Rocker, whose nine-goal display nearly proved the difference between the two sides. However, whilst one can't blame Buckley for trying to hit up the hot Sav in the last play of the day, every Collingwood fan asks, what if he just went for goal? It's a strange finish to the game because having been... And we'll deep into the, dig into this a little bit more. Having been the best player on the ground by a country mile and pretty much pulled Collingwood back into the game in the third quarter, he then takes the absolute worst option in that final play. I don't think it's the absolute worst option. Sav's kicked 9-2 for the day and he's been taking pack marks over four or five defenders all day. He's being a team player. Like, and that's been his one criticism his entire career is that Nathan Buckley isn't a team player. And he's been like, no, nah, I'm going to hit and do the team thing. I'm going to hit up our inform full forward on the tit. He's going to go back and slot it and win us the game. And instead, ball gets sport, dribbles out of bounds, and that's game over. So we'll get back to the actual footy in a minute. But in your eyes, why is this the Anzac Day traditional contest that's actually stuck. Like, so the Saints in New Zealand didn't really stick. The Barassi Cup, which I mentioned in the intro, didn't really stick. So what it is about, what is it about Collingwood Essendon that has stuck? I'm going to answer your question with a question. Is, do we know why it was Collingwood Essendon, the first one? 
did the powers that mm. be ever allude to the fact that like is are these the two biggest clubs that have the most servicemen or anything like that? Or was it just Shitty wants to do Anzac Day and we'll get a big credit if it's against Collingwood? That was pretty much it. So Sheedy wanted to do Anzac Day. It's his idea. He then took the idea to Collingwood and took the idea to the RSL, which gives birth to the clash as it is. Um, to be perfectly honest, both clubs after the first Anzac Day game when they drew 94,000 people were never going to take their hands off it again mm-hmm. as a concept. And then I guess the more interesting strand to this is that um, Professor Robert Pascoe, who's a history professor at VU, basically asserted that this, or the foundation of this clash was a power grab because the comp was nationalising and the power was shifting away from Victoria. So the theory kind of expresses it is like, hey, look at every, look everyone else in Australia. If we schedule Collingwood and Essendon, we'll get a crowd for a home and away game that none of you could get close to. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit, I think, of old Victorian feeling about the reasons that this was created in the manner that it was. Mm. And I suppose the reason why it worked was the first game was out awesome. This is a very rewatchable game. And also I think the fact that it ended in a draw. So as we'll go on to explain, there's periods here where both teams could have made this an absolute blowout. And if that's the case, it probably doesn't, probably doesn't become what it is. But the fact that it is alive all the way through the end, it becomes a classic game. All of the big players had big games and big impact. Minus one. And, and yeah, and so it becomes this, this mammoth event because of the first iteration is, is so good that people are like ready for it next year. You, it would be a game where you left that game being like, that was a great day at the football. Really interesting aspect with the Anzac Day commemorations thrown in and I will happily buy my ticket now to do it again next year. And I think the other thing, and I mentioned the 1990 grand final, the two sides were quite strong at the time they were big clubs, but they also had a fierce ongoing rivalry. And when you look at the other clubs in inner Melbourne, the other option is probably Carlton because Fitzroy are dying. And Richmond, although they eventually knock Essendon out of the finals in 1995, are generally just a perennial basket case. So mm. they're probably the obvious two candidates at the time. And when you kind of look at where they go from here, Dad and I made a point of going to Anzac Day, I think in 2002 and 2003. And that was clearly years where Essendon were coming down from winning flags, but Collingwood were making grand finals. So kind of for the, that first 10-year period of this clash, I would say that both of those clubs were still power clubs, which then mm. allowed it to settle. And then when you kind of get to the phases later in the decade where they've both dropped off and Essendon in particular have had their various trials and tribulations, that initial spurt allowed it to kind of survive. There's also something very poetic about this game ending in a draw in the sense that the old adage is there's no winners in war. And if this is a game to commemorate war, then if the first one ends in a draw, that's kind of a very, you know, very circumstantial and coincidental, but poetic finish to the first iteration that kind of reinforces that, well, maybe we made the right decision. Like we got, we got the narrative that we wanted and now this kind of proves the, the concept accidentally, but proves it. So we mentioned in the unwatchables, the lack of war sport metaphors in the papers in the 60s. The first thing that hits you over the head like a ton of bricks when you open the YouTube clip of this game is Drew Morfitt 
referencing the Anzac spirit immediately. And the Anzac spirit will be needed to be found by Collingwood because they desperately need a win. Because Collingwood is it three. And then he does it again at three-quarter time mm. when the Pies have found form to lead. So he kind of comes out with this. The Pies have clearly found some of the Anzac spirit. They're now 14 points up at three-quarter time, having come from the clouds. And it's like, okay, we started that, didn't we? Um, and when you compare that, and I know Pasco kind of makes this point in his paper, and I've referenced this a few times, um, but he makes the point that there was no spectre of Anzac fighting spirit summoned up in any of the Anzac clashes that have preceded the 1995 one. It'd be interesting to know if that was just Drew Moffat waxing lyrical off his own head or whether it was like a concerted effort by all the production team, the AFL, the two clubs, Yara started to be like, let's really make sure that we hammer home the fact that this is an Anzac Day game. Even in his own making comments, he makes the, you know, the statements that it's the 80th anniversary since, like, since the first Anzac Day and all those other comments. So I feel like it's a very, I think it's like a very concerted effort and it's at the forefront of his mind to make sure that kind of, he sells this, this package to the viewers at home. I'd love to know. Mm. But there's a, and I kind of mentioned this in the notes, like there's a little bit of, everything feels a little bit ad hoc, not ad hoc. Yeah, no, but actually ad hoc because they have kind of that pregame ceremony and the players break early and the crowd clearly don't know how to observe a minute silence yet. So you can, if you looked at it, you'd just be like, does anyone actually know what they're meant to be doing at this moment as the ceremonies are happening? Well, they definitely haven't it seen the very, last post before. It was very strange. Mm. Like, cause, and even like the teams kind of, the last post hadn't finished and the teams both broke from their lines and went into huddles. Yeah, that, that first, the middle pause in the last post, it just threw it on off. The crowd went wild. They broke into the, yeah, it was very odd to see, especially because now if you are like, there is always like one idiot at the more modern Anzac Day games that does something stupid, but they get, like, they can feel the disdain of the collective being like, you're being a jerk right now. Whereas then they clearly had no idea. There was 50, hmm. 60,000 people who had never seen a last post before at the footy that day. It's so, yeah, that was the strangest thing. One of the strangest things watching it back because my memory of that, and we went together last year, that kind of silence is the most, there's nothing, even the big sounds in the MCG, nothing is as otherworldly as that amount of people being dead silent to the point where you can hear a baby cry or a phone squeak, or Mm. sorry, a chair squeak or a phone ding. It's like people breathing. It's so weird. And they clearly hadn't cottoned on at that point in 1995. So moving to the actual footy. So there's a big showdown and a big and often discussed pub conversation in our circles about James Hurd and Nathan Buckley. Is this game 
the perfect exemplar of why you would always take Buckley ahead of Heard. Well, that's a ridiculous statement. Because what taking one game and then saying this this confirms their whole careers is obviously ridiculous. But also, I think this game actually confirms that they are very different players. Like the argument is always going to be like, well, Voss heard Buckley, but by extension, Voss heard Buckley, Harvey, Rusciuto. Heard's not really a midfielder. Correct. So he basically s- plays as an undersized centre half forward. Or he plays as he actually probably is way ahead of his time. So if you put these players into the modern game, Heard still would is Heard will still excel because he is that quintessential damaging mid like midfielder forward. He's like Toby Green but taller. Yeah, like a yeah. like a Bontempelli esque player, like a, but better than Bont obviously, better than all those players. But he's got he's that better modern, than Bont. Heard is better than Bont. Bond has done nothing yet. Anyway, that's not the argument we're having at the moment. So I think, yes, if you look at this, in this game in particular, Hurd is, Hurd is taken out of the game by his direct opponent. It's one game, so be it. It's not his best game. He'll go on to have many a great Anzac Day game. He has a fair few Anzac Day medals to his name. He also, if you do the, if you do the deep dive even further and actually go, so there's obviously the careers of these three players that we always have, but we've got just the two, Buckley versus Hurd. Essendon versus Collingwood. Over their career, they're compatible, but not really because one is like an inside midfielder that explodes at a packs and does all the accumulative things and has huge numbers. The other, Heard, is this outside player but also rolls forward and is more damaging on the scoreboard. So that, that's their careers. If you go big game moments, though, Heard still pops up in this one. Heard almost still wins the game for them. Whereas Buckley, if you want to be really rude about it, Shirks the opportunity. Buckley won a Norm Smith in a grand in a losing grand final. Heard won all of his grand finals. I'm pretty sure. So there is that argument. I can't believe you just played devil as devil's advocate for James Heard. You can say so off brand. The comparison here is flawed. So I feel like the comparison in the in the Trinity, the Holy Trinity of the the 90s, early 2000s, is Heard Buckley Voss. But Hurd is the outlier. Hurd is not. Hurd is there just by era association. He has. He should never be. He can be compared, but he's not. It's not a direct head-to-head comparison. The head-to-head comparison is Voss and Buckley, and Voss has Buckley's number. Voss must give Buckley nightmares. But that's we'll have to talk about that one later. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that as a microcosm of how they were utilised by their respective coaches. Like Buckley's given license to roam in the midfield. Hurd plays a lot of this game probably more than he does later in the decade forward because Essendon don't have Matthew Lloyd. So Lloyd doesn't debut until about midway through 95, which mm. means that um, their forward line is, a, is an absolute shit show and they can't kick straight. And he's kind of the... Yeah, he, I mean, he's obviously that detracts from his ability to perform on the day. And then the other thing that is really remarkable, and I'll mention this a little bit later, but... Gavin Krasiska, who played on him, this is one of the great negating games. He just wins halves contest after contest after contest without getting any numbers himself. And his his job on herd is 
true Dylan Grimes areas. Well, we probably have to wait to see what the coach says because it draws better than the loss, certainly for Essendon. Well, what about for Collingwood, though? They really needed to get the points. And there's Lee Matthews. He's gathered the whole team in the centre circle. Drew, if you recall, they started the day that way. During, at half past 12, they all met in, in, their, in their blazers and met in the middle of the ground, and Lee spoke to them again, and rightfully so, he's got them there again. Oh, I'd love to know what his attitude to two premiership points instead of four is. It's a draw here at the MCG in front of 94,825, 17-9 to 16-15. So, I've alluded to this a little bit. The draw... And we mentioned in your intro that the Dons could have buried this game in the second quarter. They don't, and then they're down by 14 points at the final change. So who should feel more pissed off about the fact this game was drawn? Well, interestingly, if you read the reports from the time, it sounds like in the rooms, the Essendon players are quite happy with the draw. Kevin Shetty was mad pissed. Lee Matthews was very happy with the draw but the Collingwood players were mad pissed. So everyone's got mixed emotions here. Obviously, Lee Matthews is under the cloche because they've lost the first three games. This is only a draw. Draws on a win. He's still under pressure. But obviously, the Pies are like, well, we'll take two points over zero. So be it. And then, yeah. The Bombers, I feel like they know they threw that away. Both teams threw it away. Like, both teams should come at that being like, you know what, probably deserve to draw that one because we both had chances to take this game with the scruff and we both didn't take it. So it kind of makes sense. I mean, I'd be more annoyed if I was Collingwood because a win at this point... You had the momentum later. Yeah. Yeah, but also just not even just what's happening within the game. Like, Essendon can afford to go from 3-zip to 3-1, whereas the win gets Collingwood rolling if they grasp it. So I think for Collingwood, it would have been far more consequential. Um, and that's purely based on their ladder positions because realistically, the end score, despite the fact it was a draw, they weren't level on goals. Essendon kicked six more behinds than their opposition because of that period in the second quarter where they honestly couldn't have hit a barn door with a machine gun. Like, it was, it was honestly, like, yeah, their forward, forward structure was, would have had Sheedy tearing his hair out. And I think the interesting thing in their narrative is they have that 1993 flag and then they get really, really good again at the end of the decade when they have a gun forward in Matthew Lloyd, which is what they're probably really obviously lacking in this match. Although we mentioned this because early on, Michael Simons, who was playing up forward for Essendon, was marking everything, but he kicked like three behinds and one out on the full in the first quarter and a half. And then she moves him to play back. Surely... You just ride the wave. You just go, he's obviously playing forward for a reason. He's going to come good. If he's clunking in that often, he will eventually kick straight enough that we will capitalise on the scoreboard. Because when they move him back, they take their best defender and put him forward. So I don't understand how that solves anything. And then when those players are out of position... That is when Collingwood gets back into the game. In the third quarter, yeah. In the third quarter. So it's like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Yeah. You have supremacy at halftime despite not kicking straight. The plan is working. The execution's not there. Just say, players, deep breaths before you kick a goal. Execute your shots at goal. Rip it, rip it out. Let's go. Dip is wrong. Collingwood aren't in this game. 
Instead, they go, nope, let's change it up. Oh, no, no, here we go. No, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because if you immediately look to this game, your immediate response will be, oh, how would how does Severio Rocker kick nine goals playing on Dustin Fletcher? But he doesn't play on Dustin Fletcher until the last 15 minutes because Dustin Fletcher's mm-hmm. playing forward because there's no Matthew Lloyd. And so it's just this kind of real... And then obviously the fact that Fletcher actually started back but then moved forward and they moved their eminent forward back, it just makes... It defies any logic. And then we mentioned Hurd and his kind of toweling. But I'm surprised that he didn't... When he was getting towed up that obviously, I'm surprised that he didn't get moved into the midfield, particularly in that third quarter, at more points. Like when the game was kind of Collingwood when Buckley were kind of Buckley and McGuan got off the leash and they started kind of bossing the thing. I was really surprised at that point that Heard didn't or wasn't given a chance to get more involved. I feel like especially you see it's interesting looking at the game we did two weeks ago, the two thousand and four Heard game versus this game, and seeing early career Heard versus late career Heard, and then also the tactics kind of evolve. So in the 90s, I feel like you were very much lined up in your, in your lines, six lines across the ground, as against coming into more modern football where midfielders would rotate forward and rest forward and then come back in. And then if you were an elite player like her, you could pick and choose. I'm going forward now. I'm going into, I'm going into the midfield. I'm going into the contest. I'm going to sit on the outside. I'm going to back myself into nowhere. I'm the most damaging. Whereas I think early in his career, and probably fair enough too, He's just saying, you're playing half forward, play half forward. Yeah, I think that's he probably of... doesn't have that, that power to be like, I'm just going in the midfield, boys, because I'm getting towed up and I can't get away from this bloke. Yeah, That power probably doesn't come until, you know, the end of the decade. But it was just an interesting kind of, kind of watch. Rocker! Well, he's 50 metres out and he's into the breeze. But this bloke can put a ball into orbit. He'll take one of his best kicks. But the Pies are on fire at the moment. This to level the scores. He's done it! So we mentioned Severio Rocker kicking nine bombs. So I reckon he kicked one goal or two goals from inside 30. Pretty much mm. everything. He just dobbed from, like, not even 50, like 55. So, like, can you remember a better kick for goal from distance than Sav Rocker? The best bit about this, before you answer the question, is that he misses an absolute dolly from like 25 metres out on a slight angle because he doesn't kick through the ball. And Which he's is literally kicking Collingwood the areas. Every modern Collingwood power forward seemed to have the same problem. Sav, Anthony, Trav Cloak. 40 out plus. Mason. Yeah, Mason Cox. He's not quite a power forward. He's also... Dugowie's not that accurate either. Yeah, but again, is a bit different. But like the big... You just think, like, we have this guy that no one can mark against. These big players that just charge out, take a clunk. They're like, they look like they could play like Tony Lockett. But unless they're kicking from 40 plus, they're not going to hit They're not going to hit the target. It's just it's very strange to say that, that Collingwood just found themselves with, like, the same problem for, like, a good 15-year period. Dermot Burden, his second game for Collingwood, and what a fine stage it is for Dermot here this afternoon. The MCG, where he does play his best football. Dermot Burden's playing for Collingwood in this game. He is. Now, that man had a chest for the ages. I don't know how, like, I'm trying to think of a way, like, I just feel like people would just bounce off his pecs. 
he kind of makes a really classic like aging champions contribution to this game, I reckon. So he went to Sydney the season before this one and it was a disaster. So then he moves to Collingwood. And as much as Rocker kicks the goals, I think there's probably at least three or four marking contests on the coverage where Brereton blocks for him. He bobs up and takes like does, has a couple of key involvements in the third and fourth quarters. So it's kind of like a perfect game for someone of his age having sustained the injuries that he sustained. So the question I'm kind of going to pose is, are we too harsh to just accept that people get older and they then progressively get worse, but they can still make really meaningful contributions? Well, I think that's why he was playing at Collingwood at the time. But in terms of his mm-hmm. legacy, no one remembers that. No one, no one cares about this game in terms of Demi's legacy. Basically, it goes like he was bloody good at Hawthorne without being their champion player. Maybe if he spent more time trying to play footy and less time trying to biff blokes, he'd be even better than what he was. And then maybe if you kind of accepted the fact because he spent half of his career trying to biff blokes, that he was a broken man and should have just accepted that he wasn't going to play his best football anymore. And instead of hunting exposure, cash, not wanting to retire, quarter life crisis, leave on a call it and going to Sydney and then just retiring well, then he probably would have been better off. But I think the legacy, I I just, the, the legacy lost was more in the Sydney experiment than it was in the Collingwood one. Because he already, he already attempted to get like, the Sydney experiment and he just went like, well, I've come this far. I may as well get fit and keep going until I can't go anymore. And his Collingwood year wasn't that bad. It, wasn't, it was just unremarkable. It was a totally acceptably average AFL standard season. 1995 for Debbie. Hmm. But he's not an average just, footballer. He's a very, know. very good footballer. I just feel like we begrudge people that twilight year. Like if Dermy wants to play one, one more, he should just play one more. He'll just be a role player. I don't really, I don't see the problem. Even like in the context of like Ablett now, I just don't see the problem with that. There's this kind of like, oh, maybe he should just retire because he's not, not as good as he was five years ago. It's like, well, most of us aren't as good as we were when we were 27. Yeah, I understand that, but I think you're not arguing that. You're not arguing that saying they're not capable of doing something in those twilight years. You're saying, I will remember you better. Well, you think as a fan, I'll remember you better if you just quit when you're ahead. But really, if anything, you just won't remember those years. As I just said, like Dermy's legacy is not tarnished because he went to Sydney or Collingwood. Most people don't even remember that he did it. I just remember him being a dominant part of a dominant team that changed the landscape of footy. Oh, Cockatoo Collins gets the ball out. Well done. Hey, has he been worth the fine that they'll have to pay? Well, any, answer, any amount you'd pay for a performance like this. Well, we were amazed when he was off the ground during that third term, Terry. And I'm sure Kevin Sheedy is personally at this stage too. So, the best cameo performance. I'm going to have to share this one, but I'll let you... Uh, have the description. Shay Cockatoo Collins. How did he not even get a vote in the Brownlow? He was, he almost won it single handedly for Essendon. I love this because this was so last year, not 2019 Anzac Day, Joe Danaher was a late inclusion and they got fined. So Shay Cockatoo Collins was the original late inclusion. He wasn't even in their squad of 30. And then they had Buick, who was a small forward 
pull out on match day. And Sheedy just went, oh, yeah, you know what? We'll just pick Shea, Shea Cocker, two Collins and pay the $7,500 fine or whatever it was. And so he has 17 kicks, five handballs, five marks, kicks three straight. But it's particularly, and I didn't actually get his quarter-by-quarter quarter breakdown, but in the third quarter and particularly in the last quarter when the game's on the line, he just gets better and better and better. So he's kind of there all day and relevant. But like his last half is probably as good as anyone on the field except mm. for Buckley and Rocker. So the one vote went to Ola Renshaw of Essendon. And I was probably surprised by that decision overall. I didn't think he was... I didn't think Ola Renshaw was the best Essendon player on the ground by a long shot. No, not at all. But um, there weren't many Essendon players that played very complete games either. So the other one I had in terms of like who was the, the lead, was Joe Masiti, who towed up Gavin Brown really early. And then this is where the coaching matchups is quite interesting because Matthews moved McGuan onto Masiti to try and make him more accountable. And then McGuan got off the chain. And after Brown was moved off Masiti, Brown actually also starts to get a bit more of the footy. So it's a kind of a, an interesting... Um, Shift. Mercedes still pretty impactful for kind of the duration of the four quarters, which probably means I reckon I would have had him as the one. But if CCC would have been fourth in that list. Underrated performance and perhaps uh, pertinent in what we might talk about in the future of this podcast is Monkhurst actually has a very good game as well. Very, very good game. Yeah. Yeah. And possibly his last good game ever. Because... Um, just thinking out loud. So Steve Alessio in the ruck that day, Essendon seemed to have, I think, three guys going through the ruck. So like Alessio, mm. Long does some ruck work and the other one has eluded me. I know Salmon didn't play on this particular day, which goes to some way to explaining the kind of forward line dysfunction. But yeah, the, the, it, Monkhorst early on was really, really, really dominant um, and probably had a very typical workman-like ruckman sort of sort of game where he was in everything and won a lot of hitouts. But the other thing in these, there's probably another era comparison is felt like there was a little bit more of like spiking the ball out of the ruck then than there is now. There was a little bit less like attempt to do deft tap work. Now it's all about distance. And I think it's actually mentioned in the commentary. They do say it's not about the players finding space. It's about getting the ball into space. But also I think the rucks are much better kicks back then too. So they were, they were just tall blokes he would run and jump and then whack the ball forward and then they became kind of marking options and longer kicks as opposed to today's rucks who are more tap deft. They're more like basketball players as opposed to footballers. So I'm going to get you to settle the, the final question. Who, who won the game from the playing cohort? Rocker or Buckley, if you were giving best on ground? It's kind of hard to go past Rocker. 9-2 is a big game. Yeah. And Rocker does, I think, does everything he possibly can to try and win that for Collingwood. 
And at the end yeah, of the day, the level up. Yeah. at the end of the day, Buckley didn't. Buckley shirked. He had his moment and he didn't take it. It's harsh. It's mean. It's revisionist. But he didn't take it. So it goes to Rocker. History is correct there in giving him the reciprocal Anzac Day middle. We've been discussing Anzac Day 1995 and that match is also remembered because of an incident that occurs with three minutes left when Michael Long is racially vilified by Damien Monkhurst. Two years on from Nicky Winmar's famous gesture at Victoria Park, Long made a stand that forced the AFL to introduce penalties for on-field racial discrimination. In his biography of Long, the short Long book, Martin Flanagan writes that the stand was the AFL's Mandela moment. To flow on nicely from our rewatchables segment and from last week's episode, that book, published in 2015, is our book club for this week. So, Gordon, my opening question for you, I'm going to get you to describe as best you can the form of this book. My best attempt at a form analysis is that it's a personal reflection essay slash diary of Martin Flanagan's time with Michael Long in an attempt to write a book about Michael Long. Yeah, about a subject who's, yeah, not overly interested in the book project, certainly not in a traditional, the traditional way that you do a book. And that's kind of mentioned by Flanagan at so many stages in this. It's like we'd sit down and we'd do several long interviews and then I'd speak to everyone around you who knows you and that would be kind of how you come up with the narrative construction of this person's life. So to kind of follow on from that initial question, is this a more enjoyable read than a traditional sporting autobiography, sporting biography, sporting memoir? Um, yes, but also because it's not any of those things. I don't think Martin Flanagan's intention with this book was to write a traditional biography about a remarkable and talented footballer. I think it was more to highlight the cultural importance of Michael Long and what he's done for football and for Australia and for Indigenous culture. And for as much as I think the the biggest takeaway is this is showing that how much Martin learns as a white fella from his, his time spent trying to understand Michael Long. And that's kind hmm. of the, the, that's the kind of like the, the key and the door that he unlocks is saying like, if, if you really have to, if you have to be really reductive about it, if you don't understand something, go to a person that you know is connected to that thing that you don't understand and try and get to know them. And then through extension, you will start to understand the thing you're grappling with. So why do you think Long was so quiet? I think in a lot of ways he just didn't want to be the story, which kind of reflects his career to an extent where he it's not ever really about him. And he tries his best not to make it about him. 
even though he mm. owns the 1993 grand final, he tries to make it about the team. Well, he, ma- he makes it about the team. He, yeah, he calls out this act of racism in 1995 on Anzac Day, but he tries to make it, he makes it about the movement, not about his own personal affliction. When he goes on this journey with Martin Flanagan, it's not about his story, it's about the story of his parents being stolen and how that affects his and the effects it has on him, but it's because he doesn't understand their story because their story was came to an abrupt closure and then restarted somewhere else. It's it's all of those. Mm. And even the long walk, as much as it does bode his name kind of by like a deliberate accident, again, is is a reflection on by walking across all these tribes that he'll cross through, it's about everyone, not about him. That's his intention is to is to make it as much as possible, not about Michael Long. There's a great quote or portion in the book where Flanagan quotes Shakespeare and he uses the kind of often used quote, which is that I think some people have great, are born into greatness, some people find it and some people have it thrust upon them and Michael Long is the third. And that's very much what is kind of said throughout the book because everything that it builds up is really discussing how Michael Long's actions were telling a bigger story. And so that's the story that you've alluded to there of the stolen generation. It's also the story of racism in the AFL. So to this point, and we spoke last week about players like Dermot, who we discussed earlier, had admitted that it was a tactic amongst players in the league, him included, to just racially abuse Winmar and Chris Lewis because it would put them off. So everything Long did was about making the future easier. There's that great quote from... David Wirapunda, who basically said that he made the next day a bit easier than the last one had been. So I, I kind of, my question specifically about 95 is why the significance of that moment isn't reflected upon as often as the significance of the Winmar moment. Well, I think it's in the intention behind the action. As we talked about last week, there's very much a, there's very much an, an acknowledgement that Winmar isn't doing this as a greater cultural movement or attempt to enforce institutional change. He's just saying, I'm fed up of being abused all day. I'm black and I'm proud. Two I statements saying that this is about me, Nikki Winmar, whereas Michael Long is trying to make it about everyone. And I think and by doing that, there isn't this... It's, it's mentioned in the book many, many times that like he's done more for the game and arguably for the Australian, for the Australian culture than any other sports person ever, but he's never really renowned for it because he's, yeah, it doesn't have that keystone moment. This, yeah, this isn't taken in a photo. This wasn't on the front page. A lot of people were very reluctant to take him up during the, long, the first long walk. Yeah, those kind of reasons kind of, yeah, preclude why he isn't more widely renowned. But also I think that is the way that he engineered it to be as well. Yeah, I think also like the photographic symbol that exists in a Winmar moment makes it, there's a very obvious symbol of that moment in a way that there isn't, because this is, the incident on the ground is really innocuous. There's like three minutes to go, Monkhorst is tackled by Long, Long's kind of on top of him and doesn't get off. Monkhurst says something. Shay Cockatoo Collins is kind of also 
actually tackling Monkhurst at the time. And then Long kind of gets up and says something. He points at Monkhurst and says something to the umpire. And then the ball's just thrown up. So it's then very much followed up in the hours and, w- and week that follows the game. And there's not really, you know, even the actual policy announcement from the AFL doesn't come until June or July when there's mm. something actually enshrined. Um, so there's really only like the, the news of the mediation that Monkhurst and Long actually go through that kind of, yeah, gives you some sense for what was shifting at that moment. And I suppose the difference between the two acts as well is that one is very spare of the moment and then tries to be avoided and it's the actions of others that reinforce the importance. So is the actions of a photographer and a journalist saying, this is an important story, let's put it on the front page of the newspaper, not Nicky Wimmer saying, I want to enact change. And this is the reverse. Michael Long's process is the reverse. It is an innocuous, innocuous moment that many people wouldn't have ever seen on the football field that is then used as a catalyst to enforce change in an institution with the backing of basically everyone and the club, especially. I think it's a strength of the book that this spends so much time in Darwin. Cause I think, and so I, I'm not sort of, I don't have the experiences of observing territory footy and Michael Long that Flanners has, but there's a couple of like, so I was lucky enough last year to go to the, the AFL NT Hall of Fame and came back to my table one day. I was sitting next to Magic McLean, who was one of, I think he was the first Territorian Indigenous player to play in the VFL. So moved to the Bulldogs in 1983. So I came back from the loo and Michael Long sitting in my chair. And it's a really interesting kind of, which which is a very weird moment because you don't just tap Michael Long on the shoulder and say, hey, mate, you're in my chair. Um, But there's, there's kind of a, particularly in the territory, there's kind of a reverence around, like everyone knows when Michael Long's in the room and even he, like McLean, Long, Morris Rioli Senior, uh, Cyril Rioli Senior, the whole group of them who were playing in the Waffle and the VFL in the 80s and 90s who also played in Northern Territory rep teams who kind of gravitate around. And in a lot of those teams, Michael Long was the youngest, but he sort of seems to be the one that a lot of people end up gravitating to, which I just think was, is kind of interesting because, and I think part of that has to be that long, I'm speculating, but long put into words or created a movement that dealt with something that so many of these people had 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 to encounter in the years between 1980 and further back and 1995 when this incident occurs. I think another interesting part of the book as well is that because Michael Long, especially in the book, speaks so little, the inference can be made is that he listens a lot. And so it is mentioned that, uh, Flanders mentions that he walks in between two cultures, blackfellow culture and whitefellow culture, and therefore gets kind of left alone as this this in-betweener. But I think if you, when you read the whole book, it kind of extends beyond that, like, because his family lines are, uh, disrupted by the stolen generation. So he actually sits not only in between blackfellow culture, whitefellow culture, but also between all the individual cultures of the tribes that his family came from and then also ended up in. And so he is this, in, is, is, is this interloper between all these different cultures. And that's what I think, and again, this is my inference, 
is why he spends so much time listening because he doesn't have a true sense. He's trying to find himself as much as people are trying to find themselves in him. And so I think, I think that's maybe why he gets so much reverence as well is because everyone can find a little bit of themselves in Michael Long. And I also think it's why this book is really, really important because there isn't a, from the time I was up in the NT in January 2018 and interviewed various Tiwi footballers, there was, I don't think I interviewed anyone who had a straightforward understanding of their identity. So like Flanagan mentions at several points, the jigsaw of Aboriginal identity. And so everyone you kind of speak to and you talk about their parents, they've had parents or grandparents who were stolen. So they have a little bit of Japanese blood here and they have blood from a tribe over in West Arnhem land. And then they have Tiwi blood and it's all kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, an issue for so many people which is why this is important because this isn't just Michael Long's story. This is the story of Indigenous Australia encapsulated through the subject of the book. Which is why this book is so much more important and poignant than a sports biography. And it's why I think that, yeah, it's emblematic of an enormous number of people in Australia, particularly in the Territory. Um, And it's, it's even... I think it gives you at various points a broader sense of there's a very poignant reflection right at the end of the book on Liam Jarrah and his kind of AFL career and connected to Michael Long's story, you kind of see how Long made it possible or more likely that Jarrah would be recruited, but also how the complexities that Jarrah was drawn back into in Yundumu are kind of not that far removed from the complexities that Long is often drawn back into. Hmm. And that is, that is kind of like the grappling undercurrent of the book is that it seems that to have success in inverted commas, people from remote indigenous communities have to give up their indigenousness to be successful in white fellow Australia. Hmm. And that's kind of the part that is really like heartbreaking about it is that we are not in even still today we don't see that much it's like you we are no real you can't set up programs you can't create satellite academies that fix that issue of people not being willing to accept people for who they are instead of trying to make them assimilate which i get in a team sport is very difficult but i think especially nowadays when we have these great successes around vulnerability and acceptance of difference that's still the one part that you don't really see come to the forefront is, yeah, there, there must, there, there is a plethora of talented remote indigenous footballers that aren't given opportunity because of people's fear that they won't be able to assimilate when really they shouldn't have to. We've kind of touched upon something there, even by mentioning Liam Jara, because this book came out in 2015. So it came out 14 years after the end of Long's career, which is a um, pardon the pun, a very long time to wait for a book, which kind of goes to the journey of um, why it is written in the manner that it is. But what it does give you an opportunity to do is to view how much the AFL has changed as a result of what Long did. But at the same time, this was written in the, the, the original Long Walk was in 2004. 
And in 2019, we still had Michael Long um, in the AFL's Indigenous round repeating the long walk and asking for much of or many of the same actions that he was asking for 15 years earlier with minimal change. So I guess the kind of the, the date that this was actually published allows you to see very clearly what has and hasn't changed. And we also see that in events that have occurred since. So we had the Adam Goods booing saga happen after the release of this book. Again, that shows that as much as you can say that Michael Long has changed the significantly changed the institution that is the AFL, it's like he also hasn't because these, this issue is still at hand. I want to just go back to Monkhorst briefly while we're still kind of, before we move completely onto the, the Adam Goods saga. So Monkhorst's response to the incident is very much to accept blame, culpability, and then stand alongside Long in a way that makes a lot of players rethink how they're behaving. So I guess the question that I'm asking is, did the way that Monkhorst react, reacted to this incident help the passage of change? And I guess the undertone to that is, did the support by a prominent white figure help Long's cause? It probably was, it probably needn't have, but I'm kind of wondering whether it did or whether we think it did. It probably did, but also I think it's an easier, that bridge between players is easier uh, to cross because you, you do have something in common. So you are all AFL footballers. You are all footballers you, and you, know, you end up knowing each other. And so I think like early, early doors, and it's mentioned in the book, it's like there it, it wasn't just an Indigenous person in each team. There was just one Indigenous person in the whole league for many times. And so that's a sense of otherness that they are left isolated and then became, you know, one per team and then multiple per team as per this Essendon side in, in 1995 and then onwards and upwards since from there. And so you get a sense of camaraderie and just sameness through experience. You just go, well, we're, I can understand that you're a player, I'm a player, we're all going through the same thing in that sense. It's very easy to come to a common ground and then have those, have those honest conversations like Monkhurst did. And so I think that's why... It happens so quickly, again, in inverted commas, to see that become an on-field, that on-field issue resolved. The problem that you get now is that there is an otherness between players and spectators that is hard to bridge because there is no shared commonality. We don't know what it is to be an AFL footballer. They don't really know what it is to be a fan. And so then there is no shared ground. It becomes, it becomes too easy to become us and them, and that's the issue we're still grappling with today. So I think you've hit upon something there because when, so in 1995, I think it's still, and I haven't fact-checked this, but I'm, assume, I'm going on the assumption that not every team had an Indigenous player, even one. And so once that starts to shift, the inference that's kind of, it, what's understood amongst the playing community is that if you're abusing Michael Long and you play for Collingwood and you have an Indigenous teammate, then by extension, you're abusing your own teammate. Is part of... <laughs> Is part of you're not just offending Michael Long, not if you're not just abusing Michael Long, you're abusing all of us, and that kind of I think becomes the collective attitude to this stuff within playing cohort. My question is, why is it now? And this is something that becomes apparent in the Good Saga. We can have supporters who celebrate their own Indigenous players, but then would boo 
Indigenous players from another club or an Indigenous player from another club. So why is... I think that was the crux of the Adams Good Saga is that people would mask it under the facade that it was just about tribalism or team focus that like I was only booing him because he played for Eston oh, or, or Sydney or whoever the player was and I'm only booing them because they dived or they cheat or they're soft or whatever mm. but it doesn't stack up but that's that's when you can get away with it you can go and yes there might be a small percentage that are just booing them because of their on-field actions or whatever then it becomes too clouded and it becomes too easy to become us and them. And I think that's the, it becomes so easy to compartmentalize in group think that this is okay because, and until you have that moment, like the playing group did and say, this is never okay because that's kind of where we need to get to. Mm. And I think the other thing that has to be said, and I was thinking about, and you kind of look at the historical time, and there's a lot, obviously a lot less on-field incidences of, racism in all sport now than there was in the 90s. Um, there was an incident very recently in the Northern Territory Football League where Austin Wanamiri was racially abused. Um, and so I guess the, there's kind of two extensions for this movement, I guess, because I think I'm relatively comfortable saying that AFL players are no longer abusing one another or vilifying one another racially on the field. But I think there's a lot of knock-on effects and a, a flow-on that still needs to happen both for spectators, but also for lower levels of the sport. And that goes probably from state leagues right down to country footy, where things are probably um, not, as, not as well understood as they probably are at the AFL. And they, they probably don't have an organisation of the size of the AFL um, creating really powerful campaigns that help to push for change. And I guess um, there's a really good review of this book where Malcolm Knox talks about the fact that it feels like an incomplete story with the way that it ends but it's important that that is reflective of I think where this situation still is and that's kind of evidenced by the goods thing and also this incident you know what I think probably three months ago in the Northern Territory Footy League so there's, there's still enough of or too much of this stuff for it to be tolerable and that's kind of why the way the book ends it doesn't feel like there's a nice positive full proper end note it finishes with, with a sense of, of hope and progression. And so the open-endedness, I think, is actually a positive open-endedness saying that this book shows progression and there's more progression to come. So next week on the pod, we've got a bumper episode. I'm super excited for this one. We've got Tony Wilson coming in to talk all things 1989 Grand Final. Wilson has written the definitive account of one of the greatest games in AFL-VFL history, maybe, between Geelong and Hawthorne. We're also going to get him to join us for a rewatch of the famous round six match between those two sides. The original, if you like, which may even have been better than the sequel. If you want to find us on social media, check out Sporting Chance on Facebook and Twitter. Hit us up with feedback and potential seg ideas if you have them. And if you're feeling generous, have a squeeze at my Patreon. It's just patreon.com slash Jack Bannister. We'll see you next week.